0: Welcome to Urbanism Vancouver, a podcast that explores how our built environment shapes our everyday lives and community experiences. I'm your host, Helen Loy. Join me as we discover where we live, work, and play, and how we can shape better communities. With each episode, we'll bring a bit of insight and industry experience from myself and my guests. We'll dive into the inner workings of our urban surroundings and explore how places are planned, designed, and built, and discuss ways to create more livable, equitable, and sustainable cities. I hope that you'll learn a little and be inspired to be more curious and more involved in impacting positive change. Before we get started today, we want to acknowledge that this podcast is recorded and produced on the traditional and unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and the tsleil Nations. We pay our respects to their elders' past, present, and emerging, and recognize the enduring connection they have to this land. We strive to have our conversations contribute towards reconciliation and work towards sustainability and equity for all the custodians of the lands. If you are just joining us for the first time, you can check out the previous episodes in your podcast feed or on our website at urbanismvancouver.com. Last season, we explored a variety of urban issues that impact our communities. Since then, British Columbia has experienced a rapid array of new policies when it comes to housing. There seems to be a real shift in the approach to addressing the housing crisis, especially considering the decades of policies focused on limiting and mitigating density. However, new aspirations to focus on density come with their own challenges. With that in mind, today we have a special episode speaking with British Columbia's Housing Minister Ravi Kallon to learn more about how his team has approached the housing file and some of the policies that may be to come. We've got the Housing Minister Ravi Kalon with us today. I guess I'll dig right into it. I'm really interested in a bit getting to know a bit about you. Mm-hmm. So, I know you grew up in Victoria, but mm-hmm. North Delta I presume is home for you now. Can you tell us a little bit about what it was like in Victoria, the community there, growing up there?
1: Well, first off, thanks for having me on your podcast. And I I do listen to your podcast, (laughs) which is kind of important because I'm a podcast geek. That's what I do in the mornings. I listen to podcasts. And so it's great to be able to chat to you about it. Yeah, no, I grew up in Victoria and I moved over here in about 2004. And it was mostly because I got onto the national field hockey team and the trainings were out of UBC and I needed an affordable place to live. And I kind of just found myself in North Delta in Annieville, actually. Mm. Uh, And then, you know, about, I don't know, seven years ago, moved near Burnsview uh, High School. And so I love this community. It's a good connection point to so many places. And you grew up here. Yes. uh, Yes. So you agree that it's an amazing community. Yes. Uh, Yes. And yeah, I've got a kid that goes to school here and It's small enough that it's still got a feel of a small town, even though we're connected to something much bigger, obviously, in the region. So, but people, as you know, in North Delta, they're very much proud of being from North Delta, which is a cool thing.
0: Mm, Yeah. My parents still live in the same house I I grew up in and it's easy for them to go to Richmond, but then also like into Vancouver and into Coquitlam where my brother lives. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. And so Ikea is close both ways. Yes, that's true. The perks of North Delta. You get
0: to pick which traffic you want to fight, right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. yeah. What got you in, into politics?
1: To be honest, when I was growing up in high school, I didn't really care about politics at all. My grandfather was obviously a new immigrant to Canada. He could speak English and others, his peers couldn't speak English. He served in the Navy, so he had some experiences of traveling. And, and so when he first came here, he realized we needed a, a South Asian, a place for seniors to gather. So he started organizing amongst the community to get a place dedicated for South Asian seniors. I was a little kid. I didn't know anything about politics, but I would go and drop leaflets off and do like mini campaigns. And so that was my first introduction to politics, but I didn't really know what politics was. And only till much later, as I got older, you know, I was actually working in banking. And I remember doing a mortgage application with, you know, there was uh, six people that were coming to apply for a townhome. And I thought to myself, I have to tell them they don't qualify and how awful it is to have six people with their full-time incomes, don't qualify for a place, there's something wrong. And so that actually was a spark that said, something's not right in society. We have to do something differently. And who would have thought that, you know, many years later, somebody would hand me a file and say, remember that problem you identified? Fix it. (laughs) So here I am now. Yeah.
0: Okay. Well, it's a roundabout kind of getting back to housing, even though you didn't start off in housing when you got into... The minister office.
1: Well, I actually started, my first role was like probably a month in. They said, bring back a human rights commission. You need to consult with the people across the province. So that was my first thing as an MLA. And housing was consistent. It was consistent in every single meeting. And so in a weird way, all my experiences between that, working with workers who have been displaced because of mill cl- closures, anti-racism, uh, economic recovery, all of them are actually housing. Yes. And so yeah. it's actually a nice place to be given those experiences I've had.
0: Yeah, it really touches upon everything. And it's so, it's so critical. I mean, it's a key piece to stability for all other facets of your life, right? Yeah. So... Now that you are on the housing profile, can I ask, did you specifically ask for it? Were you appointed for it? Yeah. yeah.
1: No, I didn't specifically ask for it, to be honest okay. with you. I, I always joke that when Premier Horgan called me in the middle of the pandemic and said, you're the Minister of Economic Recovery, okay. I honestly I didn't sleep. It's a sleep. hard task. <laughs> I didn't sleep. For two weeks, I was like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. You know, my family used to say, if you're going to fail, fail big. And I was like, oh God, that doesn't help me at all. <laughs> but I had, when Premier Eby called me and said, you're doing, you got the housing file, I had the same feeling you know like that kind of at the bottom of your stomach feeling like oh my god how are we going to address this so no I didn't ask for it Um, but you know when the premier says jump we always joke we say how high would you like us to jump (laughs) and so but I am happy that I've got this role because there's nothing more satisfying than having a file where the premier says if it's a good idea go ahead and do it. You know, that kind of freedom doesn't come. My colleagues don't have it. People who are in this job across the country, they don't have that type of flexibility. You have to go through a, a lot of process to get whatever you want. Here, Premier basically said, if it's important, you think it can done, it can help address the challenge, go ahead and do it. And so that freedom actually makes it a really enjoyable file.
0: That's so interesting that you mentioned that. Do you think that's specifically because it's housing or there's like a trust and relationship between the two of you that he's just like, yeah. you know, whatever you need to do, like you ravi specifically? Yeah.
1: I'd like to think it's both. <laughs> uh, I hope it's the, the trust piece. I think I think it is a trust piece. I mean, I have a great deal of trust to him and he has, I believe, a great deal of trust towards me. But it's also because I think the premier's got a young family. He only got a townhouse like last year, I think, uh, or a couple of years ago. And and so I think given that his life experience, given that he was a, a lawyer in the downtown east side working on housing issues, and then also just having so many peers around us that have never owned a home, who kind of are having the same struggles, right? Like forget owning a home, how are we going to afford rent, right? And so I think given that he's got that lived experience, I think... He, he's put a priority on the file. And so I think it's a combination of two, really. And um, and he knows it inside out, which means there's less explaining needed to be done. It's more of a let's get going and get it done.
0: Good. Well, that's really reflected, I think, in all the policies and everything that's happened since you've come on this file. I've personally been really excited just to see like, oh my gosh, I wake up, there's another new policy (laughs) out. And, you know, even among my friend group, we're joking like, does anybody on his team get any sleep? Like, they're just constantly getting stuff out. So first off, I wanted to say like huge congrats to you and your team. I'm sure it's a lot of people putting in a lot of hard work to really get stuff done even though I've only followed provincial and municipal politics for, I want to say, the last five-ish years closely, it really feels like there's a change in how you guys are approaching it compared to some of your, maybe your predecessors. So I'm curious kind of what prompted such urgency, like so many new policies so quickly, and they're very ambitious.
1: Well, I think first off, credit to you and many others who have been advocating for these changes for a long time. I always say that any change that's substantial or important takes time. It takes years of advocacy. And for us to come in, it was because the space in the public mind had been created by advocates, by uh, activists, quite frankly, who were pushing and pushing and telling people this is where we need to do. And so I talked to many people who, like you, have been advocating for a long time. They're like, we've been just screaming at the top of our lungs to do this. And then it will happen all at once. And that's how it happens. And, and a lot of the changes when we got in, and quite frankly, my team is amazing. All credit goes to them. They've been working hard. And when we created this ministry, there was just talent that came from local government, from different levels of, in different spaces in housing, all of them coming, can we apply? We had so many people apply to the ministry of housing for jobs because they were like, this is an opportunity to make some serious change. And what was important for us was we knew a lot of changes needed to happen, but they need to happen quickly. And then we need to give some time for things to settle. And so that's why we had a lot of changes. Now we're giving some time to settle. Local governments need to digest the changes. Industry needs time. Not-for-profits need time. And quite frankly, I think that we were successful because we looked at what advocates here have been saying. We looked at our BC Housing Task Force recommendations. Imagine that, a report, and we're actually actioning it. Uh, We also looked at Ontario's Housing Task Force and took many things from theirs and just said, you know, that makes sense. Let's do it. And that's reflected in the changes.
0: When your team went about setting out, okay, we have a lot of important work to do, were there kind of key objectives or themes that, for example, you know, the importance of densifying or the importance of addressing certain types of demand, were there kind of key themes that drove the policies that you then enacted?
1: I look at my notebook when I first got into the housing file and I just wrote a couple of scribbles down for myself. And I just said to myself, The three things that I wanted to really focus on was how do we cut the red tape so we can get housing built faster? Great one, important Um, one. uh, How do we invest more in affordable housing? Mm -hmm. Because the private sector has an important role in addressing housing, but they can't do it alone. It's going to require governments to invest into deeply affordable housing for populations that, quite frankly, won't be able to live in the market rentals that are coming now. Uh, and then third, how do we protect what we already have? And so those were kind of the three themes. And, and you'll see that many of the items that we have fit within those themes. Uh, legislative reforms around you know public hearings and uh, allowing more units on housing, transit oriented development is around the red tape. Bucket, the Rental Protection Fund is a really important piece to protect our existing stock and grow the non-market space. And then, of course, we are making historic levels of investment into actual affordable housing, co-ops, Indigenous housing. Like, we're the only province in the country that's funding on and off housing for Indigenous communities. And we are investing more on reserve housing than the federal government, which is their responsibility. And so those were the buckets and, and you know, we have still some more work to do, no doubt. Uh, we have some things still coming, but I think that the the changes together reflect, I think, the thoughtful change we need in housing. And by the way, it didn't just start a year ago. Some of these changes were being discussed since 2018 in report after report, like, let's do this, let's do this. And the difference is we are just actioning them.
0: Yeah, On your topic about supporting the the non-market piece and the affordable piece, I spent about six years working Mm. for a nonprofit. And so I really saw firsthand how difficult it was to make affordable housing work. And grants help and, you know, some of the Metro Vancouver DCCs being waived, that sometimes helps. But really, it's it's just so challenging. And I'm sure you've heard some feedback as to projects have to be viable. We don't just Mm -hmm. plan for them. They also have to be financially viable. So I wonder, is your team investigating any further policies or perhaps even some exemptions that will help a lot of the nonprofits out there be able to redevelop?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, we're looking at any options and we welcome any options. So we have a lot of folks coming forward saying, well, you should consider this, you should consider this. Now they see all these things happening. There's more ideas coming, which is great. Part of the changes we're doing, like the, the Housing Supply Act and you know, the targets for communities, I think that is a fundamental shift in how we see not-for-profits and their role in our community. So for the longest time, and you worked in not-for-profit, you're sitting the same line as everybody else saying, please let us through the door. We want to build affordable housing. And we know non-market housing is more affordable for longer than the private sector. And so with the Housing Supply Act and giving communities targets and saying, you have to build this much affordable housing. You have to build so much non-market housing. The conversation has flipped. Now, not-for-profits are telling me that local governments are coming to them and saying, how can we get to these targets? How can we work together to get that? So I think that's a a psychological shift, which already is helping. How we do our funding has shifted. We used to have fund, the community housing fund that would open up kind of every three years. And so if you miss the project, you'd be down tooling forever and you'd be like, oh man, who knows when this fund will ever open again. So now we provide PDF funding for projects that perhaps are in the early stages of development, but the community housing fund will be open every year. So if you miss the intake, you're still eligible for the next intake and you can do whatever changes you need to do. So some things like that we're doing, but there's a whole host of things we still have to do to make it easier for that type of housing to be built.
0: Housing Minister Ravi Kalan has emphasized an important shift in the municipality's role when it comes to the provision of non-market housing. By ensuring that cities are accountable for housing targets, municipalities are incentivized to create policies that are feasible and result in new affordable homes. However, there are still a variety of challenges facing non-market housing beyond local policies, and i hope that the housing minister's team will continue to explore deeper subsidies and further prioritize new affordable housing so i've personally been working with a couple of municipalities now where i see the planning team kind of like absorbing this information that's been announced right i believe it was this summer this summer that they have as a deadline to update their plans to make sure that it reflects the provincial policies that you guys have announced so i'm curious What steps are your team going to take in terms of accountability, right? Is there a review process to kind of check the plans to make sure that they were translated and interpreted to the intent that your team set out when it comes to some of these targets?
1: Yeah, so it varies depending on each piece. The public hearing piece legislation, which essentially says that if a plan fits within the community plan or a project fits within the community plan, it doesn't need to go to public hearing. That was just as of the day the legislation passed. So that's just the new thing. We are bringing some changes for the city of Vancouver to align them to where the rest of the municipalities are, and that's coming this spring. So they're not off the hook. When it comes to it, it's just the Vancouver charter is complicated. It took a little bit longer to get there, but that change is coming. The changes around small-scale multi-units allowing three, four units on single-family lots, the way we structure the, the law was that they have till June to adopt the bylaws off of our site standard document. Okay. If they do not, our site standard document becomes their bylaw. Okay. So we've basically put a marker to say, here's your time to do the work, to adjust it to your community. If you don't do it by then, then our site center document is your de facto document that that, uh, people can, proponents can work off of. I see. That's why it's so detailed. Okay. Uh, And that's why we hired so many planners to help put it together for that purpose. Now, with transit-oriented development, we needed a little bit more flexibility because it's just more complicated. And so the parking requirement piece is clear uh, and the the allowable density is is more clear. Um, and then there's still a lot of flexibility for local governments within that. And we'll have to monitor how that goes over a year. And I'm not adverse to taking more action on that. But we wanted to see how local governments take that information and, and make it into a reality in their communities.
0: Right. Yeah, because it definitely, I mean, like a site such as a Nanaimo SkyTrain station is going to vary quite a lot from somewhere on the Millennium line, for example, right? Yeah. So it'll be really interesting to see how that adoption takes place.
1: Yeah. And, and, and also if you vary to say Surrey, yes, where there's a new right. SkyTrain line yes. coming, there's more single family homes, right? So that was the challenge is you set a policy that has to make sure it has an impact in Vancouver, but also has to have a real impact in, in the, some of the new communities that are getting the transit line as well.
0: Okay, so we've kind of touched upon some of the supply-side measures, but I know obviously you guys have issued a lot of demand-side policies as well, which I think is really important. Specifically, I think short-term rental has been something you guys have focused on. I'm curious, is there, again, any ongoing monitoring to see what the result of that policy is? For example, you know, I'm reading a lot of news articles about people complaining that, you know, they bought a unit, that Mm -hmm. they were doing... Using for Airbnb, Mm -hmm. but is there any initiative to make sure that that stock is kind of returning to market, or at what Mm -hmm. rate? Kind of that outcome, I guess.
1: Yeah, we are, and and the you know I get a lot of messages from people that are worried about the Swifties. You know, I I keep telling them we're gonna be fine. Don't worry, everything's gonna be okay but we are monitoring it and I think when the principal residence requirement kicks in in June that's when we'll actually see the biggest I think impact we actually already are seeing units coming on the market I get people tagging me on posts all the time just be like look it works <laughs> you know I've this place we had a, a story person research me and said somebody's posted in their n- neighborhood group hey this property used to be a short-term rental um, now we want to Rent it to somebody in the community, and a person is now renting it, but running a daycare out of it. And so you got a daycare, you got housing for locals. And so it's working. It's already having an impact. You know, our intention wasn't to, you know, hurt people's investments. That wasn't the intention. But we had been signaling for a long time, changes are coming. This is not a space you should be in. So it's not like it was a surprise all of a sudden. People saw we were saying this for a long time. And And quite frankly, we need that housing. And so when I was saying the three buckets I'm thinking about, yeah, the rental protection fund is vitally important to protect, but so is the existing housing stock that we need for our folks here in British Columbia, not for tourists. And so short-term rentals will remain. They'll still be there in people's primary residences, but we really need to address the challenges we have first before we start taking that on.
0: I think another challenge that comes up with the push for density, uh, as well as you know, some of the security of housing for rentals, is the idea of displacement yes. and dem evictions, mm-hmm. right? And so cities like Burnaby, for example, Metrotown really experienced a lot of that, and it was very difficult. A lot of people got evicted, a lot Mm -hmm. of people got pushed out of their communities, Mm -hmm. because all of this like pressure was really centered and focused around the only area where you could add density. And so now that you've kind of freed it up and, and designated a lot of areas where we're saying, yes, this is where we should be adding more housing, is there consideration of similar perhaps province-wide tenant protection guidelines to ensure that again that density doesn't happen in in high renter density areas, yeah. right like kind of like the stuff you might have heard on that episode of Framing density yes, with Dennis course. yeah yeah. yeah
1: This is a concern of mine the displacement of folks who have been living in communities because of development. We have already told local governments, in fact, we told them when the last legislation passed, that with the rezoning process not being there, that we would provide them tools to have policies for displacement. So local governments know that. And it's important because it varies from community to community, right? What a displacement policy in Burnaby looks like and or Vancouver looks like will be completely different than what happens in Surrey, what happens in different communities. And so for us, it's about making some changes province-wide, but also allowing flexibility for Burnaby to have their policy in place and Vancouver to have a policy place, and then Surrey or Quillam to have something maybe slightly different. So that change is coming this spring with legislation. I would say that displacement policies, some form of inclusionary zoning policies, the ability for local governments to have that, uh, as well as transportation demand management, the ability to have some pieces in place with new developments are the three things that will be coming this uh, spring.
0: Okay. Can I ask a little bit about that? I sure. don't know how much you can share, yeah. but is this more an option for a local governments to apply policies as they see fit? Or is it more of similar to like the housing targets where municipalities have to do something that speaks to tenant protections, but they have flexibility to decide what that exactly looks like?
1: Yeah. With the tenant displacement piece, the legislation will be enabling And so it's about giving local governments the ability to have policies in place. And quite frankly, they're all creating policies. Like even Delta right now is developing a tenant displacement policy. Uh, Every community in Metro Vancouver, certainly, and many in Victoria and others already have it. But it's about enabling them to be able to do that. We'll have some changes at the provincial level, but mostly it's enabling local governments to be able to do something different or in some cases to be able to do what they're already doing.
0: Having discussed the policies so far, I then asked Housing Minister Ravi Kallon to tell us more about the recently announced BC Builds initiative.
1: Yeah, so I'm so excited about BC Builds because what it's fundamentally saying is that we need Governments to be into the space of housing that's available for middle income earners. Historically, BC housing focuses on the I'd say eighty four thousand dollars or less incomes, more deeply subsidized housing, social housing, supportive housing, um, that space. And and it's always been believed that the market will take care of everyone else. But what we are seeing coming out of the pandemic, in particular, is the market just cannot get to. The, the incomes of a nurse or a teacher or, you know, a firefighter. And so what we're doing with BC Builds is we're identifying government lands, we're using government financing tools and, and and using two other tools to make the projects faster. So what that means is we have 20 already sites uh, located throughout British Columbia in various communities that are either municipally owned, provincially owned, federally owned or First Nations owned land and we're putting the 2 billion dollar financing tool in place and the beauty of that is it'll be used for construction and then when it's done it'll be reinvested into other projects as well as capital grants to be able to get housing that is 30% of people's incomes between 84,000 and I'd say about 140,000 so it really moves us into a space of where Vienna has been, where Singapore has been. And some projects like Delhi. In Delhi, they have a similar type of project where they build housing for middle-income earners. Uh, and so this is a big shift uh, for us as a province. We've never been in this space. In fact, no jurisdiction in Canada has been in this space. I know California has been trying to do it in other jurisdictions. But I'm excited about it because it allows us to work with the private sector because they'll most likely be building it, maybe some not-for-profits, and but it'll be kept in not-for-profits' hands or First Nations' hands after so that we can ensure there's a level of affordability built in years after the project is done. So it really is a win-win-win. I'm super excited about it.
0: That's great. I mean, anytime... We're investing more into the non market sector, I think is super important, and tons of people have always been asking, why isn't the government just building? Why isn't the government just getting involved, right? So that I think, is a win. Sometimes a criticism of government getting involved is that there's extra layers, there's extra step, even though I know your team's been very mindful of cutting red tape yeah. so how how are you ensuring that very aggressive timeline in terms of getting things approved quickly as compared to, say, private sector coming in or even a private non-profit?
1: Yeah. Well, I would say that no one in the private sector will say to me that their projects are moving quicker than anybody else's. Right. <laughs> the fair. challenges yeah. exist everywhere. Yeah. One of the requirements for BC builds for a local government that wants this type of housing is that the project has to go to the front of the queue. Um, and so that's a requirement of the local government. They have to prioritize it because we've got a lot of Land available, a lot of underutilized lands. It took us a long time just to identify 20 sites um, because often when people say, well, there's a parcel of land here, somebody will have a use for it in the future. So they say, oh, it's not available. So we really had to, to push. So, you know, I think that those criticisms will always be there for any type of housing, but we do believe by having these sites identified by putting projects out on the market to say who can build this at what cost at how fast and then having proponents build it and just hand us the keys back will allow us to get the housing we need in a in a quicker way. And again, we're learning from other jurisdictions that have done that. We'll learn and grow as the project evolves over the years and hopefully just continue to make it better.
0: And is the idea then that after the initial 20, that this will kind of expand and hopefully more municipalities or more groups would come forward and go, okay, I have a piece of land that's suitable for this program?
1: I guarantee that will happen. In fact, like most of the ideas that have come from British Columbia, I suspect this is something that we adopted across the country um, because everyone's dealing with the same challenges, right? And, And it's not a, you know, some people, say to me, oh, it's how are we going to solve this? Is it going to be not not for profit? Is it going to be private sector? And the answer is all of them, Yeah, right? The market can deliver for a certain type of segment of our population and they need to keep doing that. We need to uh, step into a space that the market cannot deliver on right now. And so that's what we're doing with this initiative.
0: So we've definitely had decades and decades of not building non-market, I think probably since 60s or
1: 70s. We know when you have housing, affordable housing, it actually helps the economy, right? The biggest thing I hear from employers, from all the employers association, is that we could hire right now, but we have nowhere for people to live. You know, like people can't afford it. We can't compete with other jurisdictions because they can't afford it. So housing is not only the right thing because we need it as a fundamental in our society, but it actually is economic driver. It's a chicken and egg, right? We need the workers. We don't have the housing. So there's a way for us to do both. And in particular, when it comes to Indigenous housing uh, or on reserve housing, we are so far behind. Like we're far behind when it comes to non-market housing, just generally. But housing on reserve, we are so far behind. We announced housing at Seabird Island and Seabird Island Nation in the Fraser Valley. And I went there. It was a moving ceremony. They have an elementary school there uh, where the kids are being taught their history, their oral history. They're being taught their history as a community and they're getting educated. Families are living there. And with this housing, the chief told me, we have families coming back. So what is a sign of a vibrant, healthy First Nations community is when their community grows. And housing enables that to happen. And so, so the, you know, a long way of saying we have to invest, we can't afford not to invest. And if we don't do that, we're going to find ourselves in, in a much worse situation than we are even right now.
0: Yeah. On a previous episode, when we were talking to Kale Salem about the Synoc development, yeah. that was one of the criteria that they mentioned as a sign of kind of success of the project yeah. of, you know, the Squamish Nation people being able to move back into this new community that they're envisioning and building, which yeah. I think is a is a great metric, right, oh, yeah. for success. What a beautiful
1: story too, yeah. right? I yeah. mean, mm-hmm. uh, it's, I think that project's amazing. Yeah. And and I know they've got a lot of other amazing things that are coming. We're looking forward to seeing how that stuff rolls out as well.
0: Yeah, I drove by the other day and... Oh, uh, sorry, I biked by the other day and yeah. I saw the cranes going up and I thought yeah. that was nice.
1: Yeah, I saw people posting pictures and saying it's moving. That's good. That's nice to see. I was actually visiting the museum across the way. Uh, yeah. that has got the, the Space got a, Museum? Yeah, they've yeah, got okay. a special exhibit for around refugees and oh, okay. uh, an exhibit talking about the history of refugees and, and our role in it. Uh, and it talks about there, they talk about Sanak and the history of the area. So to see it out the window, finally moving up, it's pretty powerful.
0: That's nice. That's beautiful. So you touched upon the fact that, you know, housing is so related to all of these other things. And I totally agree, especially when you are encouraging policies like the transit-oriented development. And so I think, I may have this wrong, but I think the BC budget is coming out imminently in in the next little while. And one of my questions is, how is your ministry working with the other ministries to ensure mm. that, you know, when you have new housing and it needs to be near transit, that the transit infrastructure is also being upgraded and even things like storm sewer and whatnot, right? Because it all has to go hand in hand. Yeah. And from what I've heard so far, there's not that much additional funding for our public transit this year or with the new budget. So how are your teams kind of working with the other ministries?
1: Well, the, the mayors in Metro Vancouver are always going to advocate for more dollars and, and good on them. That's what they should be doing. But we have been a good partner when it comes to expanding transit. You know, the the Broadway line out to the Fraser Valley. we didn't do a referendum. <laughs> right. We just said, the money is needed. Let's go and start doing this work. Just this last year, we gave them $500 million because they were struggling coming out of the pandemic and uh, ridership was, you know... A, Up and down, and they were really behind on dollars. We invested in that money. Now they want to expand the rapid bus transit. And that's the conversations that our ministry of finance folks are having. It may not be directly in the budget as a budget announcement, but it definitely is a priority for us. And the reason why transit oriented development legislation was so important is that now housing and infrastructure for transit are tied together. And so now when we jointly go to the federal government for money, we say we're addressing transit needs, but we're also addressing housing at the same time. And so, we have always been there as a partner. We're going to continue to. That's the only way to build strong, healthy, vibrant communities. And I know that we just got a new rapid line on Scott Road here. It's not rapid bus transit as they've defined it, but it's pretty awesome. Uh, and I used it, and it actually gets you there much faster. And so, but we have to we have to do more uh, as our communities grow.
0: So with all the policy coming out with supporting and encouraging a lot more supply, how does this impact smaller communities in BC that may already be facing a lot of infrastructure challenges and that adding density would really just magnify some of those concerns?
1: Well, the challenges around housing are everywhere. It's not a Metro Vancouver or a CRD issue. It's in all communities. You know, especially coming out of the pandemic, you know, there was always a saying that capital is mobile. Well, labor's mobile now. So that means people can work at distance and they're starting to move. They're starting to move to smaller communities and it's putting housing pressures on all the communities. Now, some of the communities have unique challenges. Our rules, our, our, our legislation was more around communities that already have infrastructure, already have housing plans designed for their community. So, we, you know, we're not encouraging that sprawl. You know, we're saying let's keep it within urban containment areas or boundary areas. Where the infrastructure already exists, perhaps it needs upgrading. So that was an important piece. But the challenge of getting housing built in smaller communities is more unique. They touch against provincial permitting. Um, there's sometimes First Nations related a consultation required. We have a new ministry, which we call Walrus Waterland. Resource development, and uh, we've brought all the permitting places into one ministry, and we're actually working directly with them now to re- reduce the time that per- uh, permits required from the province. In fact, I heard a stat just recently that they just in one year, forty five percent reduction in a forty five day reduction in wait times. That's pretty significant in one year. We have more work to do to do that, but to get housing built in some smaller communities, you have to be creative. And so we're seeing the smaller communities communities saying, okay, we need housing, but can you get us funding for childcare? And then can you get healthcare funding for us so that we can pool them together so we can attract a bigger builder to come in town because the project is bigger. And so that's what we're starting to do in smaller communities. We're actually doing it in bigger communities too, where like if you're building housing, you should have childcare, but it works better in smaller communities where you can put multiple projects together. And they're more nimble, and they're able to do it. So we're finding different ways to address the housing challenges depending on the size of community, but it certainly is not easy in some of those communities.
0: The housing minister shared a lot of insight into the level of complexity related to encouraging new, much-needed housing across BC. After covering some of the policies his team has announced since they first began their term, I then asked Ravi Callon about the work and policies that are underway and still to come.
1: Well, we have so many mass timber projects in British Columbia. We are using government procurement to drive the demand. Um, I do believe we're going to see more private sector investments in I manufacturing. Hope so. Yeah, and and you know this is the future. If people think that we are going to have enough tradespeople, if they think we're going to have enough planners for the housing we need, we're not. No. So we have to innovate. We have to do things differently. And mass timber is an important piece on the built side. I think that will help us get there.
0: Yeah. And we have tons of smart people who can figure it out, but we need policies that kind of make it feasible. Enable it. Yeah. Yeah. I remember the very first mass timber project that I toured out at UBC. They had all this beautiful mass timber that they built during, you know, middle of construction. And then by the end, they had covered it all up with drywall because of the way that the building codes work. Yeah, Right. And so hopefully, you know, some of these changes will actually reflect the intent, right, of, of Mass Timber.
1: Yeah, and that Broad Commons building. Uh, yeah. And uh, yeah, I've, I visited as well. And there's like yeah three layers of yeah. the behind that. Yeah. But it was also because it was the first building. Yes. And there were students. Yeah. And so there was this big fear that, you know, that this is going to be the worst. But the new building code that changes that we have out right now for consultation is amazing because it allows up to 18 stories. But what's more amazing is that it'll allow up to nine stories with no zip rock, like fully exposed. And so what that means is we're going to have buildings, hopefully around transit, um, that that especially in that eight story, the nine story space, that will be mass timber buildings where you can completely see the wood everywhere. And so I think that is going to enable more housing to be built in a more sustainable way, which is amazing because you want, you've got transit, you got housing and you got to sustainably build and that's the future.
0: I know there's policy that's like working with planners and then the building codes is like a whole other beast, right? How has that been? And is there more work in that side?
1: There's always more work. And uh, right now we are in the process of looking at digitizing the building code and looking at how we can have more BIM-enabled code. Uh, I didn't know much about this stuff, but I'm geeking out on it now in this role. But our goal is to very soon have one site where projects can go through and upload their projects. And have auto code compliance checks done on them, have completeness checks done on them so that, you know, there's a one understanding of what a complete application is. Yes. And over time, move to BIM-enabled sites where you can just upload it within seconds to see if it fits within the code. I mean, that's the future. And so that work is happening. We have a digital advisory group that's got folks from the development community, from engineering, from architects to planners. All of us are working together to create what this will look like. And again, BC will be the first in the country. And our goal and the conversations we're having with Canada is that it'll be something that will be taken across the country if it's successful. So that's stuff that's more in the weeds, but it's game changing. Uh, And, and you know, like how exciting for me is that imagine home builder who's maybe doesn't have the sophistication, can go on a site, find their, identify their parcel through a simple map, and then they can get automatically a couple of options of homes that are pre-approved designs Yes, uh, and say, here you go. Why don't you just take this and submit this because it fits with your site? I mean, that's where we're taking this thing to.
0: Which is also ironically how they did it back then when you had the catalog of homes, right? Right. So it's just like doing it the same way that already worked.
1: But a digital version. Digital version. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, BIM is super cool. I actually only recently worked on a project with BIM Uh and I was surprised like, How are we not already doing this everywhere? Like we have people up in the moon, like we have, you know, self-driving cars and we can't figure out a 3D model to build our buildings. It just... Well, the technology exists. Yeah.
1: The challenge you have is that you have in North America, the state governments, provincial governments don't want to take a lead. And so every local government's doing their own thing. And that's going to take us forever to do. And that's why we just said from a provincial level, we're going to take the lead. We're going to help set standards. We're going to help create guidelines. And then when everybody comes together on it, then maybe that'll be the guideline that happens across the country. That's our hope. We'll we'll see where it goes.
0: I hope so, because sometimes just trying to read all the different policies and plans across the cities can be can be challenging everyone's a little bit different yeah. even the way that they call or define the same like content right
1: yes exactly. so and what uh, yeah. so I was saying with their building permit tool that we're working on mm. if I can get 15 16 communities to agree on what a complete application looks like right that's a big win in itself yeah. like yes. I'll take that yes yes <laughs> uh, and then we'll yeah. move on to the next thing after that <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> yeah no keep us posted yeah. I'd love to hear how that goes I don't know when the end of the term is for you or for this party, but how would you define success after this term? Like, what are kind of some of those key things that you want to tick off in order to feel like, okay, I've really, I've really like made a real dent on this housing file?
1: Yeah. You know, people ask me that all the time. The election's in October, but, you know, the work we're doing hopefully can continue uh, after that's in the hands of the people. For me, it's always hard, this question, because. Like I go and talk to people who are living in RVs. I go talk to people who are living in SROs. And so when do you actually have success when people are still struggling for housing? So there's really no kind of end point where I can be like, oh, we achieved what we need to when people are still struggling. And my sports mentality just cannot, I can't shake that if you're not getting better, you're getting worse. And so I think that housing policy just takes time. Like there's no overnight fix. There's no quick switch that I can flip that's gonna solve this problem. And so, yes, the elections of October, but there's so much more work to be done after October. The implementation of all the legislation is going to be happening this summer. We have to see how it settles. And then we're going to have to make more refinements as we go forward. And that's my hope, is just to keep plugging away and, and the outcome will take care of itself.
0: Well, I I think I mentioned this on Twitter, but following along with all the things that happen with housing kind of sometimes can be a little bit depressing when you see all the projects that get turned down, when you see all the people who are friends who are, you know, demovicted or whatnot. And I've mentioned that it's been really refreshing seeing all the policy come through from your team and that as someone who has a lot of peers who are maybe younger, mm-hmm. who you know may still be living at home because they can't afford to move out, it feels like it's a little bit more hopeful now. And I hope that you guys will be able to continue your work in October.
1: No, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. And yeah, it, we all need the hope. Uh, that it's you know going to get better, and I do believe it's going to get better. Like we're already seeing changes, but there's a lot of work still mm-hmm. ahead of us. And uh, so, if you got ideas, keep uh, putting them on your podcast because I'm listening.
0: Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you so much again for taking time uh, to chat with me today. Yeah, it was really nice to to chat with you.
1: Yeah. Well, let's do it again.
0: There are so many people locally and globally who have been long advocating for greater density, more housing, and changes in our policies to ensure that we are encouraging the number and type of homes that we desperately need. And now it appears that BC has a leader in housing who is ready to take big steps in the right direction. That said, there's still a long way to go. I hope we see further focus on ensuring stability for those who need it. For example, tenant protections, as well as substantial increases in our investments toward non-market housing, such as not-for-profit rentals and co-ops. If you want to get involved, the best thing you can do is vote. Vote at each level of government and make sure that politicians are making housing the priority. You've been listening to Urbanism Vancouver, the podcast dedicated to bettering our built environment. Be sure to follow us on your listening platform of choice so you don't miss our future releases. I'm Helen Loi. Thanks for listening. This podcast series was independently funded and produced by myself and Aaron Johnson. Visit us at urbanismvancouver.com.